In the New York Times best-selling book, Your Best Life Now, author and well-known televangelist preacher Joel Osteen says, it's a quote from his book, I am what I am today because of what I believed about myself yesterday. And I will be tomorrow what I'm believing about myself right now. God sees us as more than conquerors able to fulfill our destiny. We need to see ourselves through the eyes of our creator. He continues to say that our self-image should mirror exactly what God says about us, not what we feel or think. And he encourages readers to be people of faith, for if you can see the invisible, God will do the impossible. If you don't quite understand what that means, you're in good company. I don't either. Osteen's books have been bought by millions and millions of people around the globe seeking fulfillment and peace and joy. His books are usually found under the Christianity section or the self-help section at bookstores. But what does the Bible have to say about this anthropological approach to our desires? Historically, people have a general view of Christianity that is rooted in scripture. And it gets a little wonky. Things go helter-skelter when they diverge from the clear truths of the gospel of God's grace. So Mormonism says you are saved by grace after all you can do. Universalists say God's grace through Christ covers everyone equally and that no one will be left dead in their sin. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, we see the most fundamental truths of the Christian gospel that saves. Here we see that God's grace alone saves spiritually dead sinners. If you are here and you're not yet a Christian, you came on a fantastic Sunday. Any Sunday you will hear the gospel. But especially this Sunday, if you want to know what the Bible teaches about Christianity, about the good news, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is a great place to go. So I'm going to read that. Uh, it's on page 200, uh, 976 of your pew Bible. Page 976 of your pew Bible. Follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And then we'll pray. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lord, clearly, your grace is a huge part of our lives. And Lord, we confess that we have diminished your grace. The grace that saved us. The grace that changed us from being children of wrath and disobedience to being adopted and loved by you. And so, Father, where we've diminished, undermined, forgotten about that saving grace, Lord, would you remind us just how pow- what an act of power and kindness it was for you to save us. And for those of us who are Christians, Lord, we pray that we would know that God, the grace didn't just save us, but it sustains us. Give us confidence that we are your workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. Oh, Lord, use your word to stir affections for you, to reveal where our hearts are hardened. We pray that you would do this in your mighty power, through your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, our sermon has two points today. Two points. Point number one, we were dead in sin. Verses one to three. We were dead in sin, and I'll go ahead and give you point two now. We are alive in Christ. Verses four to ten. We were dead in sin, one to three. We are alive in Christ. Verses four to six. Look at verse one there. We've read it. I prayed about it. Let's look at it. Let's look at it again. Verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We mentioned this a week or two ago, but there's this you there. But we need to ask ourselves, who is this you? In this letter to the Ephesians, Paul is showing how the mystery of the gospel is made clear when Jews and Gentiles come together in the same church, different ethnicities, and they worship the same God. God is particularly glorified in that act. And so he's using this and redeeming people for his namesake. And in Ephesians, he often says, you, he's referring referring to the Gentiles. And Gentiles mean anyone who's just not Jewish. So, So I'm a Gentile, and I imagine most of us in here are Gentiles. And so he's saying, you, Gentile, and then a verse or two later, he includes everyone, Jew and Gentile. And I think that's what he's doing here. I think he's speaking to Gentiles here and then switching to Jews and and Gentiles in verse 3. This is what I think happened in chapter 1, verse 12 and verse 13. And if you go down to chapter 2, verse 11, you see him make that same distinction. Just look at there in 2, 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. 
So I think he's saying, you Gentiles, the Ephesian church is made up of a lot of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And then he comes and includes everyone under this. This is obviously uh, not a physical death that he's referring to. Otherwise, he wouldn't be living. Otherwise, he wouldn't be writing to living people. But this is a spiritual death that has cut off people from their creator. Image bearers created in God's image have been disconnected from God. And Ephesians calls that dead. The Bible says that we are all dead in sin, that we have all sinned. So 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 143, 2, for no one living is righteous before you. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are dead in the trespasses and sins. And notice the language here. Let's just focus on that word dead for a second. He doesn't say you were in a coma. He doesn't say you were injured by sin. You weren't merely broken by sin, but you are dead in sin. This past week, Cal and I drove to Nashville, and, and Cal's fascinated by simple things in life, like dead armadillos. They must not have armadillos in New Jersey, right? So we passed like three consecutive, another dead armadillo. And I'm thinking about this passage, and I'm just thinking, that's our spiritual state before God. That armadillo is not going to get up. It is crushed to a point of death. And that's us before God. Our, our hearts are beating, but we're offline when it comes to the spirit of God. You see, we're not mere molecules from a cosmic explosion that formed into matter and now have feelings and thoughts. We are intentionally created creatures. And we trespass and go against God's decree, decrees. We sin We have acts of evil that do not please God, but are contrary to his ways. This sin category he has is trespasses, and then he adds sins. Trespasses, I think, things that are more in line, like the the scripture said this, or the law said this, and he chose to go beyond what the law said. And so he adds sin there. It's not merely redundant, but it's kind of a a cap, uh, it's capturing everything there. Your heart inclinations, your thoughts, your desires, even in the secret parts of your thoughts. We have sinned against this holy God. But as he keeps going, he breaks sin down into three different categories here. I don't know about you, if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you've you've heard the the three temptations of Christians. the, The devil, the world, the devil, and the flesh. In part, this comes from Ephesians chapter 2 right here. So, so notice here, he first describes the world as an aspect of sin. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And so Paul is saying to us, church, we walked according to the course of this world. The ways of the world, the philosophies of the world, the worldview of the world tells you how to walk. And you don't have eyes to see how to walk in God's ways. And so you just follow the course of this world. 
And so if your world tells you to do all that you can to earn money, go to college for four years, maybe get an MBA, become a doctor, or maybe drop out of college, start a startup in your garage so that you become a, come have a huge company and have billions of dollars. If your world tells you to do that, you're going to follow the course of this world. But it's not just in, in economic ways. If your world tells you to own people as slaves, as your personal property, you're likely going to follow the course of this world. If your world tells you to abort babies in the womb and say that's normal and they're just a collection of cells, that's your world. And you're just going to go along with the course of this world. If your world tells you, you guys know my favorite missionary, if your world tells you that cannibalism is normal and fine, you're just going to go along with what your world tells you. If your world tells you you can take advantage of those who are downtrodden, who are the marginalized of society, that's what you're going to do. You see, there are no true justice warriors. There are no true justice warriors able to get out of their worldview, get out of their course of this world and say, I know what justice looks like and fight for justice. You see, we all just have our own warped view of what is good and what is just. And then we fight for that. We walked in the world because as spiritual zombies, we had nothing else to do. No other thought except to, as my dad used to do, he's a, he's a skydiver, take the, take the grass, throw it up, watch the way the wind would blow and say, okay, we need to, we need to go over there today. That was us. We follow the course of this world because wherever the world was saying, we're going to do. Okay, then he moves on. The world, then he goes to the devil. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Oh, we learned some things about Satan here. You want to know about the devil? A good place to look at the devil is not cartoons from when you were little of, of a, a man who's red or, or Duke Blue Devil, but red. So I used to think the devil was. I was a Duke, a Duke fan. So I'm not in North Carolina. I can't just... I was a Duke fan. The Blue Devil was royal blue. And I used to think that the devil, well, just like that blue devil, except red. It's not a great place to understand your understanding of who the devil is or what he looks like or what he does. You see, Satan here is a prince. We also know that his desire is to kill and steal and destroy and to devour people. His methods are conniving, lying, and misleading. He holds out that which might look tasty, but in the end is poison to your soul. And just like in the Garden of Eden, his lies, if believed, lead to ruin and they lead to death. Moving along, we have in verse 3, the third component of sin, the flesh. And, and Satan, both the devil and both the flesh get expelled, expounded more and more in the book of Ephesians. Look at verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. While dead in our sin, we lived in a by the mantra, I want it, 
I feel it, it should be mine, therefore it's okay to get it. And now as Christians, we resist those feelings. And as Paul definitely gets to in Ephesians chapter 6, we have the power to resist those urges of the flesh. We can stand firm because of what Christ has done in us and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We can stand firm in the gospel against the schemes of the devil that wage war against us. Friends, there's much more that can be said about those three categories. But we're going to move on because if the sermon ended here, it would be pretty discouraging. Second point, we are alive in Christ. We are alive in Christ. Verses 4 to 10. And we see that we are alive in Christ because of grace. And I think Paul's breaking it down into, in at least four ways here. I mean, there's some sub, some sub points here. So if you're a note taker, listen up. The actions of grace, verses 4 to 6. The aims of grace, or the aim rather, the aim of grace, verse 7. Verses 8 and 9, the avenue of grace. And verse 10, always grace. Look again at verses 4 to 6, the actions of grace. This is how grace moves and works. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, Christian, you are alive in Christ Jesus because of the actions of grace. The initiative is not ours. It is solely God's initiative. We were dead as a doorknob. We were like armadillo roadkill. And then come along, then comes along verse four. But God, this was your state. Doesn't say, but Mark. Doesn't say, but then Kyle, then Imogene, then Ernie. It says, but God. He stepped into our deadness and he did something about it. The actions of grace are initiated by him out of, we see here, his mercy and compassion. Out of his mercy, he loves us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Church, this is super clear. We were dead and he looked upon us in our deadened state. Not in a state of comatose. In our deadened state, we had no way to revive ourselves. He made us, Jew and Gentile, alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, divine action, God's action, divine grace took action in our hearts. And then his rich mercy flowed out of his love. It breathed spiritual life into us and saved us from the penalty of trespassing against the laws and the penalty from sinning against him. And that penalty is judgment. And just a reminder, that judgment is eternal. I wonder if you're a guest with us here, you might think, well, I'm temporal. How can there be eternal punishment? It's because your sins are against an eternal God. And so the judgment is deserving of an eternal judgment. 
If you're still questioning that, I'm, I'm glad you're here this morning. That's not an easy thing to understand or even to believe. Again, it takes divine grace to even believe that. I wonder if you've heard this stuff before. I wonder if you know that God is the one who actions grace, who actions undeserved favor. There's a simple definition for what grace is, undeserved favor. You cannot earn it. You cannot merit it. You see, it's so clear here. God's doing the action here. If you try to earn your salvation, if you come to the table and say, God, I'm here, I need your grace, and by the way, God, look what I've done. I've cleaned my life up a bit. That's not grace. That's grace plus a bunch of other stuff. It's not grace alone. I used to, uh, my junior year of college, I, I, we lived in an apartment with some guys, and across the hall was a young woman named uh, Merit. So Merit was across the hall. I would share the gospel with Merit. I'd see her come home late uh, uh, at night and um, usually intoxicated. And then I'd talk to her during the day and she'd tell how she'd regret it. And she just beat herself up. Like she kept doing the same thing over and over again. And she just felt so helpless. And Merit thought, ironically, that she needed to merit her way up to God. Right? She needed to earn favor with God. She would say to me, basically, if I just clean myself up a little bit, if I stop doing these things, then maybe I could come to God. And I kept saying to Merit, Merit, today is day of salvation. God is not expecting you, not wanting you. And in fact, you can't even do it. You can't come to God. It is his marvelous grace. There is no way to merit yourself back to God. I was encouraged by uh, Quinn and, and, and Connor in, in their evangelism overseas in Turkey. Um, um, what was the brother's name? Uh, not a brother. What was the guy's name that you shared the gospel with? And he said 70% good works, 30% bad works or something like that. Hamza? Hamza, right? And what did you say, Quinn? Just say it out loud for us. You can't even what? You can't even get 1%. Uh, so church visitor, if you're not yet a Christian, uh, that's what the clear teaching of the Bible is. You can't even come to God with your 1% good works. Because you've sinned against an eternal God. Well, subpoint number two, verse seven, the aim of grace. Look at verse seven. This is what grace is doing. It's acting here. And then the aim of grace is verse seven. So that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The action of grace has a grand purpose, and that is right here in verse 7. We know what God's up to. In the coming ages, from the time of this writing on, into the future, that's what that means, his aim is to display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, toward Jew and Gentile who are in Christ Jesus. His aim is to showcase his own heart for his people. All the saving has its grand purpose here in verse 7. You see, God is kind. This is best seen in his acts of grace. 
And this is primarily seen in the ultimate act of grace, where out of the storehouses of his kind heart, he gave his one and only son who showcased grace on a cross by being the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this has been the Christian's boast since. The ultimate act of grace, God on a cross, offering for all time a single sacrifice for sin that is sufficient for those who come to him. You see, God is kind, and that's what he's saying here. God is full of kindness, and he wants to showcase that to the world. Titus 3 speaks of God's kindness like this in Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He has mercy and compassion, and it's not seen in our acts of righteousness. But his mercy, his compassion, his kindness is seen in his own sacrificial love toward us. Most keenly seen on the cross. You see, the aim of grace is not to save you, period. You understand that? The aim of grace is not to save you, period. The aim of grace is to make God look kind to his creation. He is kind, but creation just doesn't know how kind he is. He is glorious, but we just don't see how glorious he is unless the eyes of our hearts are enlightened by the Spirit to behold the beauty of the bloody Savior on the cross. You see, the Bible is saying this, the cross displays the very heart of God towards sinners. And when we behold, when we behold it, we are washed by the regenerated, we are washed and regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit whom Christ poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that we are justified by grace and by grace alone. Paul wants to know this. Paul wants his church who is suffering and struggling in the world 2,000 years ago to know this. You were saved by grace alone. So look back to gain encouragement here and know that you were saved by grace and you are sustained by grace. And as he continues to go on in the book of Ephesians, he's using this vertical relationship of man to God and how grace works there. To remind them of how grace should work in the local church. So he's doing this vertical thing. He's starting there. All good theologians, they start with God and then man. And then from there, they talk about how man, men, men relate to each other. But this vertical grace, if it's beheld and if it's treasured, it leads to abundant horizontal grace in the church. And so I wonder if you've considered how You've extended grace to others and how that grace shows the riches of grace of God in Christ. Church, when you overlook an offense or even a perceived offense, you're displaying to the world that I've been given grace, marvelous grace, infinite grace as we sung about. I don't need an eye for eye mentality. That's the course of this world. You see, when grace is active in you, you don't begrudgingly have a cold shoulder towards someone. You also don't have red-hot anger towards someone. You don't kill someone with silence, or do you kill them with violence? 
This is ungracious and can be damaging to a church. This ungracious attitude for those of us who beheld grace, who know grace, it can be sneaky. Here's one small illustration. I was at the pool recently and the lifeguard was blowing her whistle in my general vicinity. Now the pool was crowded and I was just literally just standing there like this. So I, my assumption is that there's someone around me doing something wrong and there's a three or four girls behind me and I look back at them and, and uh, they don't know what's going on and I turn around and um, kind of go back to my thing. But then all of a sudden the whistle's blowing again and, uh, and I'm like, who is she looking at? And this goes on for a minute, which, you know, a minute doesn't sound long, but it felt like 10 minutes, right? And she keeps doing it. And then I say... Because there's a lot of us around here like, who is she talking to? I say, we don't know who you're talking to because your sunglasses are on. We can't see. And she goes like this. She says, I'm talking to you. And I say, okay, what, what, what am I doing? Keep in mind, she's like 15 or 16. So this is where the flesh is coming out. Um, I'm talking to you. She said, he can't dive into the pool. And my immediate thought was, well, take your sunglasses off next time you want to talk to someone. You know, I didn't say it like that. And then I thought, he can't even dive. He's belly flopping. And I just kept thinking of all these things to get at her who's just doing her job. And unbeknownst to her, no one could see who she's talking to because she had sunglasses on. See, that happens time and time again in our lives as Christians. We get wronged or perceived wrong or misunderstanding. And what happens? We're ready for attack or ready for cold shoulder or there's something about we want to, we want, we, we, we do not handle things appropriately. As is evidenced by me at the pool recently with a 15 year old lifeguard. You see, you can be kind to others even when they don't deserve it. Because God has been kind to you when you don't deserve it. But the grace we extend to one another isn't just overlooking offenses. It's also confronting sin. I wonder if you have that understanding. That grace isn't just overlooking offenses or sins or even perceived sin. But it's also confronting sin. Yes, God has thrown our sin into a bottomless and borderless ocean. But he also confronted our sin on the cross. And then what does he do since Pentecost? He's been given Christians the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what does the gift of the Holy Spirit do? It judges the world concerning righteousness. It teaches us what is righteous and what is unrighteous. And all this, friends, the aim of grace is to make God look kind and glorious. And that makes us more joyful. More importantly... You're not just displaying this to the world, but you're actually displaying this to God. And 2 Corinthians has a lot to say about that. Well, third sub-point, verses 8 and 9, the avenue of grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. The action of grace saves you. The aim of grace is to display the riches of the kindness of God. And the avenue of getting grace comes through faith. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
You want the grace of God? You get it by believing, by having faith. And to put it negatively, he says here, it does not come as a result of works or your own doing. So there's no boasting here for those of us who are in Christ. It comes by grace alone and by faith alone. If it were by works, then you would say, look at me. But no one does that, right? We never do that. No, our boasting comes in, in, in often subtle ways about our own faith. We like to look at our righteousness. And as we see in the next point, like we don't have anything to boast about. Because whose workmanship are we? We're his workmanship. He is the working one working in and through us. Church, this comes through faith. Raise your hand in here if you are a Christian, okay? Keep your hand up if you became a Christian after you heard the gospel. Right? Everyone, right? You can't become a Christian, though, unless you hear it. Because faith comes what? By hearing, as Romans 10 teaches. And so church and application here, again, he's getting more into it in the later, later end of the book. If you want to see someone get saved, your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, somebody with a, a maple leaf tattoo at the pool, you've got to start talking to them. And you've got to share the gospel with them because faith comes by hearing and grace comes through faith. And this can be tricky. Roman Catholic Church would say it slightly different, but incredibly important. Catholics would say that the grace is a gift that is necessary for salvation. Okay, we'd be nodding our heads there. But then it says, but we need to do our part and accept the gift by faith. That's just not what Paul's teaching here, though. He's not teaching that in Ephesians 2 or in Romans 9, 10, 11. Yeah, faith comes by hearing. And then lights go on and we say, we praise you, God, for your glorious grace. That's the testimony of the Christian. See, a Christian boasting about their gifts makes absolutely no sense. Uh, How many of you kids have ever played basketball before? How many kids have played basketball? Okay. When you were, when you were little, maybe, maybe you had a nine foot goal or an eight foot goal. Maybe your mom or dad or, or someone would lift you up and you'd slam dunk it. This is how ridiculous it is, kids, for us to boast about grace. It would be ridiculous if Trey or Locker Will said, Hey guys, I can slam dunk a basketball. I punch it through there every time. I'm awesome. You should see me. I do 360s. I do windmills. I do 180s. All the while, there is no way, no offense boys, There's no way you guys are slam dunking that ball unless I lift you up. That's how ridiculous it is, kids, for us to boast when we've been given grace, when we've been given the grace of Christ. There's no room for boasting about how good we are or our righteous deeds. It makes no sense. And you can see grace when it's beautiful, can't you? If you ever want to to do a test in, in a worldly example of this. Look at the Hall of Fame speeches by David Robinson and then click over to Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame speech that was given the same day. Robinson is gracious. He's talking about all of those who have propped him up, helped him along the way. And Jordan, he's worked incredibly hard, but he's got this 
this bitterness, this sad, sobering bitterness about him and how he got there. And all the people said he couldn't do it. I have that printed out here, but we don't have time for it. It's good though. Friends, preach to yourself the gospel. Paul Tripp said this to, in, in order for us to preach gospel truth to us, to ourselves. He said, no one is more influential in your life than you, than you are, because no one talks to you more than you do. You are in an unending conversation with yourself. You are talking to yourself all of the time. Uh, Friends, therefore, preach the gospel of God's grace to yourself all the time. That will keep you from boasting, keep you humble. And as we see in the last part, it will fuel you to be a gracious person. Look at verse 10, our last sub point from the last point. Verse 10, always grace. It is always grace, friends, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It was grace when you were saved. It's still grace now, and it's always going to be grace. We were created in Christ Jesus. There's a location there. We're in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. And now, because he did that, we should walk in them. God is always loving, and this is displayed through grace in various ways. He gives us life. He gives us shelter. But he also says that one day he will be serving us in heaven. If you remember, remember back to that sermon in Isaiah where God is serving his people. Or and this is Jesus. See, God's grace is all around us. And what I think Paul's doing here is he wants you, dear Christian, to look at the epicenter of God's grace. Where can we see God be the most gracious? No matter what trial you're in right now. No matter what difficulty it is, this works every time if you stare at the heart of God's love and grace to you. And that is staring at the cross of Christ. And friends, I can say that with confidence because we are always going to be singing and boasting about the cross of Christ, not our righteous deeds. Revelation makes this abundantly clear. That there is a lamb and he was slain. Revelation 5, 6. You see what I'm doing here? We need to be a people that focus on the grace of God through the cross of Christ. Because even in heaven, even at the end of all time, we will be worshiping a lamb who was slain. So Revelation 5, 6 says this. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Revelation 5, 9, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. They all sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Keep going. Revelation 5, 11, 12. Uh, They're singing with a loud voice and they say, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And friends, here's what we know about this from Revelation. That when we are in heaven with Jesus, when he's wiping away our tears, on his hands will be the scars From those nails. That's what it took for Thomas to believe. Remember that? Thomas saw and then he believed. He saw the scars. And so there's going to be always a reminder. 
for you and for me, that Jesus loved me to the point of death on a cross. And I am here in this Lamb's book of life, experiencing joy upon joy because of Christ's love for me. And the scars and the Lamb who was slain will forever be a reminder of that. Oh, friends, let us never get over the grace of God in Christ. It is the epicenter of God's love for you. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you that you are building us up as a people founded upon your grace. Lord, keep us aware of the schemes of the evil one that like to distort your grace. Oh, Lord, these truly are subtle. They truly are sneaky. And for so many, they've been easy to believe. Keep our church founded on grace alone by faith alone. Oh, Lord, we pray that we continue to sing that in our songs, in our conversations with each other, in our teaching, in our preaching, in our counsel. Oh, Lord, establish us more and more upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In your name we pray. Amen.